a selection of verses from the book of Ezra. In the first year of King Cyrus of Persia, in order that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be accomplished, the Lord stirred up the spirit of King Cyrus of Persia so that he sent a herald throughout all his kingdom and also in a written edict declared, Thus says King Cyrus of Persia, The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem in Judah. Any of those among you who are of his people, may their God be with them, are now permitted to go up to Jerusalem in Judah and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. And let all survivors in whatever place they reside be assisted by the people of their place with silver and gold, with goods and with animals, besides freewill offerings for the house of God in Jerusalem. The heads of the families of Judah and Benjamin, and the priests and the Levites, everyone whose spirit God had stirred, got ready to go up and rebuild the house of the Lord in Jerusalem. When the seventh month came, and the Israelites were in their towns, the people gathered together as one in Jerusalem. They set up the altar on its foundation because they were in dread of the people of the lands, and they offered burnt offerings upon it to the Lord morning and evening. When the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments were stationed to praise the Lord with trumpets, and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals, according to the directions of King David of Israel. But many of the priests and Levites and heads of families, old people who had seen the first house on its foundation, wept with a loud voice when they saw this house, though many shouted aloud for joy, so that the people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shout from the sound of the people's weeping for the people shouted so loudly that the sound was heard far away. When the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the returned exiles were building a temple to the Lord, the God of Israel, they approached Zerubbabel and the heads of families and said to them, let us build with you, for we worship your God as you do and we have been sacrificing to him ever since the days of King Esarhaddon of Assyria, who brought us here. But Zerubbabel, Jeshua, and the rest of the heads of families in Israel said to them, You shall have no part with us in building a house to our God, but we alone will build to the Lord, the God of Israel, as King Cyrus of Persia has commanded us. After these things had been done, the officials approached me and said, the people of Israel, the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the people of the lands with their abominations, from the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians and the Amorites, for they have taken some of their daughters as wives for themselves and for their sons, Thus the holy seed has mixed itself with the peoples of the lands, and in this faithlessness the officials and leaders have led the way. 
When I heard this, I tore my garment and my mantle and pulled hair from my head and beard and sat appalled. Therefore do not give your daughters to their sons, neither take their daughters for your sons, and never seek their peace or prosperity, so that you may be strong and eat the good of the land and leave it for an inheritance to your children forever. Then all the people of Judah and Benjamin assembled at Jerusalem within the three days. It was the ninth month on the twentieth day of the month. All the people sat in the open square before the house of God, trembling because of this matter and because of the heavy rain. Then Ezra the priest stood up and said to them, You have trespassed and married foreign women, and so increased the guilt of Israel. Now make confession to the Lord of the God of your ancestors and do his will. Separate yourselves from the peoples of the land and from the foreign wives. Then all the assembly answered with a loud voice, It is so, we must do as you have said. All those that had married foreign women, they sent them away with their children. Well, if you were with us on... Friday, you might have been forgiving that Christmas had already arrived. Well, I'm afraid today we are firmly back in the season of Advent. Uh, this season of longing profoundly for the world to change. We can't rush too fast to Christmas Day. There is a rallying cry that has been around quite prominently, I think, globally over the last 10, 15 years. You may know it or a version of it, and it is something like the phrase, I want my country back. I want my country back. From calls for Scottish independence to Brexit to Trump, the desire for land to have and to hold until death us do part is firmly back in vogue although I suspect it has never really gone away. From Islamic State to the Englishman whose home is his castle, from Israel and Palestine to Russia and Ukraine, the idea that this particular patch on the surface of God's green earth should be mine and mine forever is a compelling narrative that drives everything from war and terrorism to oppressive dictatorships to, let's face it, the entire capitalist system. The idea that land ownership can be defined within a hierarchical system of tenure which ascends from the individual via the family and the tribe to the homeland this is fundamental to our understanding of the post-feudal nation-state here in Europe, and you only have to look at the hell that breaks loose whenever people are required to live across borders that are not of their choosing, to see how wedded our human societies are to the land that we live in and the land that gives us life. And the thing about land ownership is that it is always a multi-generational issue. You don't change these things overnight because there is always an ideology at play behind whichever individual or family or corporation has actually got their name on the title deed. 
So, for example, whilst we may consider it to be perfectly acceptable for a member of the English landed gentry, I don't know, say the Duke of Westminster, to own most of the land on which the better parts of London are built, we might deem it somewhat less acceptable for foreign investors to be buying large tracts of prime real estate here in London with a view to long-term profit from whatever is often is referred to as still, in some way, our land. And so we come back to slogans such as, I want my country back, or stop the boats, or Rwanda is a safe and stable country. <laughs> and the question of whether such sentiments, however heartfelt or not, can ever be enacted in a meaningful way is as troubling today as I think it ever has been. The thing is, many of today's most divisive political issues on the global stage revolve around land ownership, and they have therefore their roots firmly in the past. So if you want to understand Brexit, or Trump, or Scottish nationalism, or ISIS, or the Palestinian problem, you actually have to go back a very long way into the history of why we are where we are, and why certain people feel entitled to their territorial assertions. People may forget the details, of course, but the grudges remain. And the sense of prerogative for my nation, coupled with a sense of fear and frustration when it feels as if someone is taking my country away from me, well, this lies behind so much of our experience of the world and so many of the things that are reported in our newspapers. It's not all always about skin colour, of course, although skin colour can be one of the most enduring and vicious forms of segregation. It's more usually about land and who owns it, money and who has it, and power, who wields it. Land, money and power. These are the multi-generational issues which echo down through civilizations, creating the context within which each rising generation then stakes their own claim on the world. And in all of this, who your parents are matters very much indeed. If your parents, for example, were blue-collar steel or textile workers in the deep south of the United States of America, if they were people who saw their jobs disappearing during the 20th century because of overseas manufacturing and immigrant labour markets, then you probably will be voting once again for Donald Trump in the hope that he will make your country great again. The irony, of course, here is that Trump is himself hardly the personification of the defender of the working man. If anything, he's the exact opposite. He's the landowner who, who represents the vested interests and entrenched power of inherited wealth. But he is at least, if you happen to be one of those people in the Deep South, he is at least an American landowner. And a bit like the Grosvenor Estates here in London, British born and bred, Trump represents the embodiment of an all-American dream, which remains compelling to those whose desire for a better life is frustrated because they feel as if someone else is taking their land from them. What we call neoliberalism, the free market economic model that has prevailed in the Western world primarily since the Second World War, has, it seems to me, largely failed in its aim of reducing social inequality, controlling the monopolisation of production through competition and re reduced regulation. And I want to suggest this is because it was just the latest manifestation of an ancient story 
of control based on land, money and power. The rhetoric of the free market simply creates a situation within which the rich have remained rich and where land has remained centralised into the ownership of those who have inherited the power to assert their rights over it. And this is where, at last, I want us to turn back for a few minutes to the story of Ezra, this deeply troubling story which Barbara read for us earlier. The story of the rebuilding of the temple, which you might think is a good thing. I think this ancient story from a land far away, and yet a land that some of us have visited recently. I think it helps us unmask the deep systems of domination that exist in human society and which continue to make their presence felt in our own world. So firstly, come back in time with me for a bit of the backstory. The first temple in Jerusalem, the first temple, was built by King Solomon. And it was built as a religious symbol of the political unification of the land of Israel that had occurred under the reign of his father, King David. The story tells us, and we've been kind of going through some of this story over the autumn, the story tells us that King David had succeeded where all other Jewish rulers before him had failed. He had managed to unite the disparate tribes of the Jewish people into one nation with one king and one defined border. In many ways, David had functioned for the Jews a bit like the way King Arthur functions for uh, those of us who are English. A kind of mythical figure of old who sets the ideology of the nation, defining for future generations what it means to be part of this people. And Solomon's temple was part of that narrative. It cemented the relationship between the house of David and the so-called God of Israel. However, King David's political union of the land never actually lasted very long. It was already starting to fragment by the time his son Solomon took over. And Solomon tried to kind of piece together this union of tribes uh, by doing a grand building project. And so he built this lavish temple in Jerusalem, the capital of one of those tribes, the capital of Judah. He was trying to say, Judah is going to rule all of Israel. All of the other tribes are subservient to Judah and God dictates it to be so because the temple is in Jerusalem, the capital of Judah. However, that didn't work either. And things started to fragment again and after 250 years, the Assyrians kind of coming in from the north, they saw easy prey and the Assyrians um, invaded and conquered the northern parts of this united land of Israel. So all the northern tribes kind of get taken over at that point. Judah and Jerusalem are better defended and they hold out against the Assyrians and the Assyrians never invade the south. Be a bit like, you know, the Vikings coming into the United Kingdom and getting a certain amount of the way down, maybe down as far as a line somewhere on Birmingham, but never quite managing to take London. But uh, after that, uh, the Babylonians do come in and they do conquer the south. They conquer Judah, they conquer uh, Jerusalem, uh, they destroy Solomon's temple, this symbol of Israel's unity. Uh, they carry off um, the ruling elite of the land into exile in Babylon. And this, this time of exile in Babylon for the Jewish elite lasted about 50 years. And then political 
political processes shifted again and uh, Babylon itself fell to the Persian king Cyrus and it turned out that Cyrus King Cyrus had a slightly different policy with regards to the lands he ruled and to displaced peoples whereas the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar who had conquered uh, Jerusalem and, and Judah in the first place he believed that the way to control a conquered nation was to take the elite into captivity and put his own rulers in their place to extract tribute and taxes from the local population that was uh, Babylonian Nebuchadnezzar's view King Cyrus of Persia he rather pursued a policy of letting people be ruled by their own leaders, worship their own gods, and as long as they paid some taxes to him, he was happy enough to live and let live. And so Cyrus conquered Babylon, and he discovered that there in Babylon he had this displaced people group of the Jewish, the Jewish exiles, and Cyrus decided that it was time to send them back. So he allowed them to return back to their homeland of Israel and he gave them some money and he gave them some power and he encouraged them to rebuild their temple and to resume the worship of their God in Israel. The quid pro quo would be well, once they were back there and once they were ruling then they continue paying him plenty of uh, taxes and tribute. And this is the point at which our reading today from the book of Ezra picks up this story. And it's a book written firmly from the perspective of Judah, this southern kingdom of the Jews, which had Jerusalem as its capital city. And it, it, it's a book that's clearly written by them to justify their ownership of their own land. It's, if you like, a bit of history being written by the victors who are willing to, who are sort of telling the story of how they got to where they are in such a way as to legitimate their current situation. So the returning Jews rebuilt their temple. They assumed power in their land and Ezra is their story of how they did it. But there are enough glimpses in this story of the darkness of that time for us to recover from it what a terrible price had to be paid for this ideology of land ownership to reassert itself the thing is those returning to the land those who had been in exile in babylon they were not the people who had left they were their grandchildren we're a couple of generations later here and in much the same way that if you if you ever go to new york and you go to an Irish bar, you will find that the Irish bar in New York bears very little resemblance to any bar you may ever actually go to in Ireland. And that's because sometimes the displaced population develops their sense of national identity in a different way to the people who remain behind in the land. And that's pretty much what had happened here with these displaced exiles in Babylon. Many of the books that make up what we might call the Jewish history 
um, certain parts of, of the Old Testament were written down by these Jews in exile in Babylon. They told and retold their national story to themselves whilst they were in exile. And whilst they were doing that, they also shaped their theology. They shaped their understanding of who God was. And so, for example, the creation stories that we meet at the beginning of the book of Genesis are very clearly rewritten versions of the Babylonian creation myths as the stories of the rise of the nation of Israel under the judges and the political unity achieved by David and his successors become the stories they tell to assert their national identity whilst they're in exile. All of this, this reworking of their theology and their history is done to create and sustain the exiles to create within them a specific understanding, a specific vision of national belonging. And it's done at a time when the land that they left is under occupation and they are the people in exile. We may never know what historical echoes lie behind these stories that they shaped and told, but it was these narratives of identity that came to be true for them as they then returned back into the land at the end of the exile. Did King David ever actually exist? Who knows, quite possibly he didn't. But that doesn't matter because the stories about him, the stories that he conquered all the tribes and united everybody and asserted the borders, those stories came to matter. What with the history of it is irrelevant, a bit like King Arthur. It doesn't matter that King Arthur never existed. We all know that the Court of Camelot shapes the way in which English people understand themselves. And it was exactly that kind of process going on here for the Jews in exile. They created and told stories that defined who they were. So then those returning back to the land of Israel from Babylon did so with a very specific vision before them of national and religious purity. A vision of what it meant for to worship their God in their temple with their king on the throne. They were, to coin a phrase, finally getting their country back. And it was Ezra's job to make it happen. He was the leader tasked with delivering on the decision to return the exiles back to the lands that they believed was theirs by right. I can almost hear him assuring the returners that return means return. Of course, this doesn't mean that the implications of the decision to return had been fully thought through in advance. Some of this was just going to have to be worked out on the hoof, so to speak, such as the thorny issue of what you're going to do with those people who are rather inconveniently already living in the lands that you're coming back to take possession of. People who might perhaps legitimately think that they too have a claim to the lands that they're already living in. And indeed a claim to be considered the legitimate children of the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. Because remember the exile only took the ruling elite away. Everybody else just stayed farming their farms, living in their hovels and paying their taxes. And then the returners come back, not to an empty land, but a land really full of people. It was inhabited by the descendants of those who had been left behind by the Babylonians. But when those locals asked if they could join in the fun, 
pointing out that they'd been faithfully worshipping God through all the years of the Babylonian invasion and that they'd quite like to help with the rebuilding of the temple, please. They are dismissed as adversaries. They're made into enemies. And so the ethnic segregation begins and two groups of people emerge within the land with two different cultures and yet both feeling that they have the cl same claim to the same piece of land. I don't know. Let's call them Palestinians and Israelis for the sake of an argument. In Ezra's vision of radical ethnic purity, we find a deeply troubling set of stories in the book that bears his name because we meet the heartbreaking story of the fate of those among the returners who had married local women and had had children with them. Clearly for the exiles during the long years in Babylon, the pressure to not marry out of the Jewish clan had been crucial at that point to their ability to remain distinctive. If they'd gone native in Babylon, they'd have just been in the end assimilated into the Babylonian culture. But they'd maintained their ethnic and religious identity. They'd only married amongst themselves, they'd shaped their religious stories, they'd shaped their political stories. And much as some immigrant groups to our own country might for a few generations at least frown upon those who choose to marry outside of their ethnic group. So it had been with the exiles, the Jewish exiles to Babylon. But once the exiles returned back to their historic homeland, clearly some of them at least had decided that their cousins who had remained behind in the land were more relative than they were stranger and had married amongst them and had had children. So this would be a bit like, let's fast forward 50 years from now, you've got Syrian refugees rehoused in Europe, people who have been come over here quite legitimately and have been housed. Let's imagine that 50 years from now, that group or their children or their grandchildren are suddenly told, right, it's time for you to go back and rebuild Aleppo. They might get there and find that there are plenty of Syrians who'd remained in the land and hadn't come over as refugees who had also been quite looking forward to rebuilding Aleppo. How are they to relate to each other? This, this is the problem we've got here. It is also analogous to the diaspora Jews of the 1950s being encouraged to return to their newly recreated homeland. How are they to relate to those who are living there? You see, it's the same story told over and over again as people are displaced and then people return. It's a story of ethnic segregation, of the dream of racial purity and of the challenges of multiculturalism. But Ezra's answer is clear. He says, these women and these children must be sent away. It's a horrific decision, it's barbaric, it's xenophobic, and it's where this story ends. The vision of God that we are given here is of a God who dwells in the temple in Jerusalem, desiring to be worshipped by an ethnically purified people. It's a deeply problematic story, and we might wonder why it is there in our scriptures at all. From the point of view of the author of the book, the sending away of the women and children is a good thing. There's no judgment on this here. It's a sign of the piety of Ezra. 
that he prioritized the purity of God's people even at the cost of great suffering. But this, I have to say, is not the God that I recognize as revealed in Jesus Christ. And I hope you will join me in a decision that we refuse to worship a God who is presented as racist and vindictive. I think the value of this story, as with so many of the other deeply troubling stories that we meet elsewhere in the Old Testament, is that it bears a terrifying testimony to those dark places where unflinching adherence to the fusion of nationalism with religion can take human beings. This is, there within the pages of our scripture, the ideology of the terrorist. It is the ideology of the crusader. It is the ideology of Christendom. And thank God there is another story in scripture which offers us an alternative vision of what it means to be human. A vision that allows us to step away from the narrative of Ezra and those like him. Psalm 24, for example, proclaims that the earth is the Lord's and all that is in it. It's not mine. It's not yours, it belongs to God. The book of Revelation gives us a glimpse of heaven's perspective on the kingdoms and nations of the world. As loud voices in heaven cry out and sing, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and his Messiah. Not in some future tense, but very much in the present tense. The earth is the Lord's and all that is in it. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and his Messiah. So to bring us back up to date, what are we to say to the ideologies of our time which lead to people crying out, I want my country back. I want those people gone and I want my country back. Well, I think on the basis of the witness of scripture, we can say to those ideologies, do you know, it was never yours in the first place. The book of Genesis, one of those texts written by the exiled Jews in Babylon and brought back by them to the land of Israel on their return, offers a perspective on the earth where humans dwell there as stewards of creation. The significance of the Genesis creation stories is not that they offer us a kind of competing narrative to the insights of contemporary science, but rather that they offer a competing narrative which contradicts the localized nationalistic view of God that drove Ezra and his contemporaries to rebuild the temple and drive away the people who were already in the land. And we need to decide which God we're going to worship here. And it's a decision with significant consequences. Ezra made his choice and the people of that region have been living with the consequences ever since. The current violence between Israel and Palestine and the decades of violence that have preceded it need to be heard in the theological and geographical context of Ezra's return and the reforms that he instituted. And the terrible irony of Ezra's situation was that the very people who had been released from their own horrific displacement into Babylon so quickly themselves became the agents of violent displacement of others. And that is a story that echoes down the centuries, speaking directly to our own global situation. And so what God will we choose to worship? 
and what difference will it make to the way we live on this earth? What if we just decide between ourselves today that we're going to live out the conviction that everything we hold, we simply hold in trust for God? Not for our children or for our nation, but for God. What if we decide between ourselves that we're going to live in such a way where we will be accountable to a different authority, resisting the free market forces which constrain us to always act for prudence and profit? What if we decide between ourselves that we're going to discover in our midst ways of living generously, ways of exercising hospitality to those who are not like us? within our homes, within our land, within our decisions? What if we live to subvert the notion that England is or should be a Christian nation because the God we worship is the God of the whole earth, not just our little corner of it? What if we live out in our lives and our community the call to advocate for those who have lost their homes? And rather than trying to drive them away, we find ways of welcoming them and giving them new homes. What if we speak out in welcome for those who have been displaced from their land? What if we seek to understand and live out before God the implications of asserting that this is not our country, this is not our land? Because as Psalm 24 puts it, the earth is the Lord's, and all the fullness thereof. Uh, during our prayers this morning, we're going to have a, a response, which will be up on the screen. And so when I say glory to God in the highest, you need to respond. And on earth, peace, goodwill to all. Glory to God in the highest. And on earth, peace, goodwill to all. When the angels appeared before the shepherds, they summed up the good news of Christ's coming as these words, glory to God in the highest, and on earth, peace, goodwill to all. That was the message needed then, and it's the message we need now. Jesus Christ came to a world pining in sin and sorrow, waiting for a saviour. Surely this too is the world we live in. We live in a world full of war in Ukraine, in Israel and Palestine, in Yemen and in Myanmar. We pray for peace, a lasting and just peace, we pray that world leaders might get together, that they might talk together with imagination and creativity to find solutions that are fair and long-lasting. Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill to all. We pray for peace in our own nation, Voices are amplified when they tell us who is to blame for the ills of today's society. They tell us who is to be included, but who is not welcome, who matters, who doesn't. 
Lord God, whose son was born of an insignificant virgin, living in a rural black backwater, who had to flee to Egypt for refuge. Lord God, you who care for all, grant us the courage and compassion to speak up for the excluded, to challenge those in power with words of truth, to seek to influence the national dialogue. Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill to all. This Christmas many will travel and go and gather with their families to celebrate. But not all households will be a place of joy and love. Many will go to homes where there is division, difficulty and strife. Some will travel to broken homes. Some will go to a home where the table has a missing one, no longer seated there. Others cannot go to homes for they are not welcome at their family table. And others have no table or home to go to at all. Such grief, strife, loss and difficulty are amplified at this time of year. We pray for all that we may put aside differences, be comforted in our grief, be open and inviting in our love, and that we may welcome the excluded this Christmas. Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill to all. Lord God, as we come to you, we acknowledge that we ourselves are not always at peace. We are troubled by anxiety, financial worries, illness, grief, concerned for our loved ones. All these things can take away our peace. We can even lack peace in our innermost parts, causing us to doubt ourselves to forget that we are created in your image. God of peace, come to us. Bring us the peace that passes all understanding. Guard our tongues, our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus who came, the Prince of Peace. Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace goodwill to all. Let us go out into his world to do his work for his glory. Amen. Thank you.